thank you, everybody, and uh, thank you for joining us on the Future of Finance podcast of Deep Macro. Um, today, I have Professor Deborah Lucas. She's the Distinguished Professor of Finance and the Director of the MIT Golub Center for Finance and Policy. Um, I mentioned that at MIT. Uh, and she is the former Chief Economist of the Congres Congressional Budget Office. Um, Deborah, thanks a lot for uh, joining us today. Thanks for having me. And um, I wanted to start by noting uh, that another of your titles is you are a member of the Shadow Open Market Committee. Uh, could you please explain what the Shadow Open Market Committee is? Sure. Um, the Shadow Open Market Committee, or SOMC, is a really interesting group. It was created by Carl Bruner and Alan Meltzer back in 1973. And, you know, as its name implies, its original purpose was to evaluate uh, what the Fed was doing and think about its monetary policy and how it might make it better. Um, but over the years, it's broadened its scope and we meet and we evaluate a, a wide range of financial, economic and regulatory policy issues. Um, a real highlight of the meetings, which are open to the public, by the way, so I invite everyone to take a listen. But we generally have a very senior person from a central bank, um, the president of a regional Fed or someone on the board, and they've uh, give very important talks, and then there's a candid discussion of current topics. So it's a great group to be a part of. I would say it's kind of uh, the core of it is that it's made up of a variety of people, but they're like-minded in the sense that they generally favor rules over discretion in monetary policy. And at the moment, they're concerned with the spread of mission creep by the uh, Fed. Would you put yourself in the rules over discretion camp? Um, I, I would put myself in the camp that the Federal Reserve should be modest in its claims and goals. Um, it is, after all, an unelected body that has the mission of price stability and full employment. Um, it's not responsible for managing the whole economy, I think, over time, um, both through what the Fed has communicated and people's expectations. It's been thought it should do and has done more and more. And I think um, I am conservative in the sense of thinking it should pull back on that. I don't think it's um, the right institution to accomplish many goals. And it seems like the wrong process given our democratic system. Okay. Well, let's let's focus on one of the two um, objectives, uh, the inflation side. Um, inflation is obviously quite high right now. What do you think are the primary drivers of inflation? Um, and I'm assuming that you're going to answer that part of it is supply side. Um, if so, how should the Fed respond to that type of inflation? Good. Well, I think in general, the question about what the Fed should do and how it should respond to it depends on the Fed's view of whether it's likely to be transitory or longer lasting. And so I don't think that whether it's coming from the supply or the demand side is is really the relevant issue. I mean, I think I share the common view that on the supply side, um, clearly there was huge disruptions during the pandemic. It takes a while to get things restarted. There's been large turnovers of employees, there's shortages. And so um, these things would naturally take a while to work out. They do after every serious recession, it takes a while for things to get back. So um, I think the Fed is rightly thinking, well, those things just have to work themselves out. There's nothing monetary policy can really do on that. Um, so that, that's the supply side answer. Okay, very good. Um, 
you've written that fiscal and credit policy have been an important pillar of uh, the support and even stimulus. And I wanted to ask if you can elaborate on that because it's not something that I hear that much, especially on the credit side. Um, and would these be more like catastrophe insurance against an event like a pandemic or a financial crisis? Or can they be used more commonly as counter cyclical tools uh, as monetary policy is? Great. Well, there's a lot packed into that. So first of all, I just want to note that I think that a lot of the inflation this time around is on the demand side and that that demand side is largely driven by fiscal and credit policy actions. And um, when I talk about those things, let me just start with fiscal policy, which is more familiar to people. Um, but as you know, there were several rounds of very broad stimulus that put you know, over a trillion dollars into people's pockets pretty widely. Um, there was expanded unemployment benefits that left some people with more money than they would have had had they just been working. And there was a panoply of other traditional fiscal policies that put a lot of money into people's pockets exactly when they had nothing to spend it on, except what they needed to spend it on, like their rent and, and all the rest. So they had to spend some of it, but they also saved a lot of it. And so that's where I think a lot of the demand side inflation is coming from. But beyond traditional fiscal policy and something that isn't that widely recognized is there were a lot of credit market actions taken by governments in the US and around the world that were as expansionary, if not more expansionary than fiscal policy. And this point of view is something that actually the IMF is looking into. They have these this very interesting graph it shows that in a lot of places, the potential magnitude of those credit policies was much greater than the fiscal policy. So what I mean by credit policy is programs um, that essentially lend to businesses or individuals on very subsidized terms. Um, importantly, they really relax who qualifies for credit. So in a normal recession, it becomes very difficult for low quality credits to borrow money, but not in this one, because there was this giant expansion of the availability of funds. In the United States, the best example of that was the $800 billion paycheck protection program, whereby businesses could basically apply. And if they got in line fast enough, um, they had access to loans, so-called loans, but they were 100% forgivable if you kept your employees around for a little while. Um, so effectively, it was a handout of money to businesses, but that was on the credit side. And something else that was huge on the credit side um, in the United States was forbearance. So the US is in this unusual situation that a large fraction of consumer credit to begin with is somehow under the control of the federal government. And I mean by that, that if you look about look at residential mortgages, Fannie, Freddie, the Federal Housing Administration, intermediates a large share of mortgages. And then student loans that account for $1.6 trillion of debt are also primarily federal. So what the government did is it chose to use forbearance or, or payment moratoria on those programs. And by my calculations, that put you know, tens of thousands of dollars into people's pockets quite widely that they wouldn't have had absent that forbearance. And you could say, well, they're going to have to pay it back. So why would they be willing to spend it? But in fact, there's a lot of people where if you put more money into their pockets, they spend it. And so I really do think that the, you know, the, the total magnitude of these things was enormous and people saved a lot of it. They're still spending it. I'm not the only person telling this story, by the way, other economists also believe this is true. So that's that's the story. And there was another part of your question, um, which 
had to do with whether it was a good idea, I suppose. Yeah, and and I mean, internationally, you mentioned the IMF has been looking at a lot of countries, and um, uh, I think you've kind of noted that Europe has done this, uh, but it's it's fairly different than, I, you know, I, I spent a long time in Japan, um, and uh, um, Japan, uh, China, uh, their credit policy sounds like of a very different sort. Uh, it's more state capitalism, support for SOEs, uh, ongoing forever, very large companies, not certainly not directed toward individuals. Um, so is, are they completely different uh, in their scope and in their ultimate economic effects, what say the US, UK, some of the European countries did uh, in response to the pandemic? Or are we creeping toward um, a version of state <laughs> capitalism, a different version? Um, that's the uh, that's a big question. Um, I hope we're not. We might be. Um, we are. We have already crept a long way towards um, some elements of state capitalism, in the sense that these days, every time there is an economic downturn, certainly during the last financial crisis and the Great Recession, and this time around, there was an immediate jump to thinking, well, you know, the banks aren't going to lend as much during a crisis, so we need to step in and um, make money very available. So I think having, you know, having credit policy in the toolbox has become very front and center. And another thing that happened this time around that was uh, worrisome to a lot of people is that the Federal Reserve was um, opened up a facility or was asked by Congress to open up a facility that gave them the capacity to make loans, not just not just make money cheaper for everyone, but to make loans to specific corporations and businesses. And certainly some people think that that's going down the slippery slope towards industrial credit policy. So, and, and you know, and we have, we um, took our entire mortgage market into the government, um, as I said before, during the last crisis, and there doesn't seem to be the will to move it back to the private sector. So we've taken what's essentially the largest credit market and put it inside the federal government. So we are taking some steps in that direction, but I don't think we're anywhere near the Chinese model or the Japanese model. That's a whole other order of magnitude of state intervention. Okay, excellent. Um, so I wanna go back then to monetary policy and um, the level of interest rates. We often think that the stance of monetary policy is determined by, let's call it the real interest rate. Um, but with inflation now at 7%, um, the real interest rate would be really, really high uh, compared to where the Fed funds rate has been in recent decades. So what sort of guidance do you think the Fed should use to determine where it should be taking the Fed funds rate? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. So for one thing, I think that the Fed funds rate these days in monetary policy is a bit of an anachronism. Um, you know, monetary policy has radically changed. So let me just say what has changed. So first of all, um, the, and importantly, the Fed pays interest on reserves. And, the, and what it does with those reserves is it funds its $8 trillion or $9 trillion balance sheet. So there's this radically new thing going on. The Fed funds market, remember, was a way that banks used to borrow and lend reserves between themselves. They really don't have to now. What they do now is they hold huge amounts of excess reserves at the Fed because the Fed pays a slightly above market interest rate. So it's in the bank's interest to do that. So they don't have to deal with the Fed funds rate. They choose that administrative rate. Um, but maybe that's a detail. But the point is that they're, uh, you know, they're, 
that that overnight fed funds market is also a very quiet market now so it's not really the natural thing to be thinking about um but let me answer the question more broadly which is i think in the past and now a, a simple focus on the real interest rates in the very short run isn't very telling about whether or not inflationary pressures are likely to persist and whether the Fed needs to raise rates in order to counter those inflationary pressures. So really what the Fed has now and in the past is all the information in the yield curve about what market participants think um, will happen to interest rates in the future. And if we look at the yield curve, there just really isn't a sign that the market thinks that this inflation is going to last very long, because if it did, we wouldn't see those really negative real interest rates. I mean, investors aren't going to accept the minus five or seven percent rate of return indefinitely. So I think that the Fed is kind of rightly looking at those broader signals and concluding that at least at the moment, there's no reason to think that this is going to last for years and might last for months or a year, but I think it will work itself out. And I think the Fed thinks that also. Okay, that's interesting. So then uh, by focusing on reserves, I uh, to state it somewhat differently than um, it's really the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, it's the um, this uh, that maybe the uh, the variable that they should be looking at. Um, the Fed will stop quantity on their current target or course uh, quantitative easing or the addition asset purchases will stop in March. Um, I believe that they'd go to zero. And then at that point, um, balance sheet reduction becomes uh, a possibility. Is um, Should the Fed have a target uh, for balance sheet reduction or um, is sort of like a replacement for the interest rate? Because it seems that the markets are still very fixated on the Fed funds rate um, as the uh, guide for or the, the, the indicator of the stance of policy. That's right. So I think the markets are looking at both. They're looking at um, the Fed funds rate, and they're also looking at what the Fed is saying they're going to do about their balance sheet. Um, the thing that makes the balance sheet tricky is it's really uncharted territory. So if you if if we had a graph in front of us of the Fed balance sheet over time, what we would see is an unprecedented jump in its size as a share of GDP during the Great Recession, and then an even larger jump in the last few years. So the, the balance sheet is just historically at all time highs. And there's a big debate among economists, as you probably know, about to what extent the Fed drawing that down is going to disrupt financial markets. You know, the, go the government essentially accommodated all the fiscal policy I was talking about before by buying Treasury debt. So almost all of the net issuance of Treasury debt that was supporting those pandemic policies is now being held by the Fed. If the Fed started reducing its balance sheets, selling all that off, if it sold off the mortgage-backed securities it's holding, um, it's an open question what, how much interest rates would go up as a result of that and where on the yield curve they would go up. So my own view is that the Fed shouldn't be holding that large a balance sheet. They should bring it down to a more normal ratio with GDP as they had in the past. Um, but as far as how fast to get there, I don't think they can say what they're gonna do because if they do something and it panics the markets, they're not gonna keep doing it. So I think they basically need to um, say that they want to reduce it, which many of them have. I don't think they've made it a universal policy. I think they should say more about what they're planning to do, but then I think they should start doing it and see what happens because we can't know 
um, really how the markets are going to respond to it. But I also don't think it can be a slave to the markets. It needs to reduce that balance sheet. It can't be the absorber of everything that the government issues forever. So I think market they also there will also be a, a period where the markets have to get used to the fact that it's not the end of the world if a Fed does slowly draw down their balance sheet. Right. Okay. Interesting. Um, so I want to go back then to your points on uh, fiscal and credit policies, because um, at least some skeptics about fiscal policy would argue that it's largely ineffective um, because the private sector can't anticipate fiscal tightening in the future, uh, kind of to pay it back. Um, I take it you're not a big fan of that, uh, but maybe you could elaborate on your um, views here on that specific point. Well, you said effective and, you know, effective for what? So what I'm claiming isn't um, anything particular yet about its effectiveness. Though I do want to return to the question you asked earlier that I didn't answer about whether fiscal policy should be used only for catastrophic events or just for general stimulus. Um, but anyway, fiscal policy happens. That's my main point. It happened in large quantities, and I think it did change people's savings and spending, and it's continuing to affect their behavior. And I think that when they got that money from the government, they didn't think to themselves, oh, well, I better just save it because I'm going to have to pay it back in taxes later. So I'm not going to spend it on um, more restaurants and goods and services and new cars and new houses. I don't think they're thinking that. You know, it is true that they probably think someone someday will have to pay for it, but it's pretty unclear who will. So at least I think the American consumer and the European consumer um, takes the money at face value. If you hand them $1,000, they have another $1,000 and they're not thinking very hard about having to pay it back. Okay, excellent. Um, but if they do, uh, I mean, then I imagine you would say that it probably would be less effective, in, at least in terms of stimulating demand. And um, I want to refer to something else you'd, you'd written somewhat about uh, debt monetization uh, before uh, for some of the COVID response related deficits. I believe I got that right, but please correct me if uh, that wasn't precise enough. Um, and I'd really like to hear your views on that, of why that could be justified for certain uh, fiscal uh, spending purposes. Okay, well, I have to say that I said that early on in the pandemic, when governments were worrying about where they would get enough money to do what they wanted to do, which was spend a lot of money and offer a lot of credit. And um, the point then was there was no sign of inflation and that in fact, monetizing some of that debt would serve multiple purposes. It would make it easier to provide the kind of social insurance that people wanted. I mean, let's, let's just go back to the situation early in the pandemic, which is there was fear of widespread job loss. People weren't going to be able to pay their mortgages or their student loans. They, um, you know, everything kind of shut down. And so um, I think there was pretty widespread agreement, even among those that aren't usually big proponents of big government, that there was a role for government as a provider of social insurance. If the government could stop you from losing your house, if it could provide unemployment benefits to tide you over, that's insurance. It's not stimulus in the traditional idea of you stimulate the economy because there's not enough demand and you want more demand. It wasn't stimulus. It was just meant to allow people to kind of have continuity 
with the obligations that they already had. But that was all very expensive and they needed money to do that. And we were also seeing a period where because there was essentially no demand, there was no inflation. And not only was there no inflation, but for actually quite a large number of years, a lot of governments around the world have been saying, well, our inflation target is say 2%, but we're really not there, we're well below it. So we felt that during this period where we, we were below inflation targets, where there was this great need for more money and worry about a lot of countries starting to hit their debt capacity and you know that could possibly cause problems in the future, um, that it might be a good time to monetize. But I have to say that again, that time it, that we're done with that because um, they're getting the inflation they wanted and then some. Okay, so time to pull back, great. So I just wanted to um, uh, close then. Um, so instead of the shadow open market committee, suppose you're on the federal open market committee. Um, would you call an emergency meeting right now um, in order to end QE quicker or maybe raise rates or at least make some kind of statement? Um, some economists have advocated this. You hear it in the market now and then. Um, are we at that point or would that do more harm than good? <laughs> I think it would do more harm than good. I don't think we're in an emergency. And so we don't need an emergency meeting. And if we had one, I don't know what we would do. I mean, I think the Fed is basically saying the right things, which is um, the inflation seems to be higher and lasting longer than they had initially thought. So they're contemplating taking more aggressive actions. Um, but again, I don't see where the emergency is. If there's anything that I think they need to meet to talk about in a non-emergency way, it is to be more clear on what they're going to do about that giant balance sheet and how they're going to bring it down. I also think they actually need to revisit um, what belongs on their balance sheet and whether it is appropriate for them to have continued to invest in things like mortgages. You know, there used to be a view that um, the central bank should only invest essentially in short-term government securities and to kind of minimize the distortions um, of the market or relative prices in different markets. And so they have a lot to talk about. <laughs> um, they also need to talk about, you know, whether it is or isn't appropriate for this apparent move in the direction of accommodating um, political goals, um, you know, whether their policies, to what extent their mandate um, suggests that they should be considering climate and social justice and other things, um, is that is the Fed the right place to do it? So I think they have a lot to talk about, but not in an emergency meeting. Okay, um, well, that's great. Uh, Professor Lucas, thanks a lot for your comments and your time. Really appreciate it, it was very interesting. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really enjoyed our conversation. Good. The content is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained in this material constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Deep Macro Incorporated or any third-party service provider to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in this or in, in any other jurisdiction in which such solicitation or offer would be unlawful under the securities laws of such jurisdiction. All content is information of a general nature and does not address the circumstances of any particular individual or entity. None of the information constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any of the information constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto. There are risks associated with investing loss of principal as possible. Some high-risk investments may use leverage, which will accentuate gains and losses of securities or firms' past investment performances not a guarantee or predictor of future investment performance.